Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio BX. I'm Yatza Frank with the Building Energy Exchange. Daylighting is a subject near and dear to me and something we focused on here at BX really since our inception. One of our earliest reports, Let There Be Daylight, analyzed the energy savings available if just the perimeter offices in New York City commercial buildings added daylighting controls to their lighting systems. And much of our earliest work from case studies to exhibits focused on advanced daylighting controls. And this last week, we held the seventh annual Daylight Hour social media campaign. So it's with great joy that I introduce our guest today, Lisa Heshong, someone who has had a singular impact on all of our knowledge about daylighting, how it impacts all of us physically, and how important it is for access to daylight in workplaces to be equitable. Lisa is a registered architect and was the principal of the Heshan Mahone Group for more than 20 years. Uh, she did groundbreaking research on energy performance in buildings, on daylighting, including human factors of building performance. She's a fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society and was awarded the 2012 uh, Haker Award for Architectural Research by the Architectural Research Center's Consortium. She has a master's in architecture from MIT and a bachelor's of science from UC Berkeley. In addition to many influential studies and academic research, she is the author of Thermal Delight in Architecture, a book uh, that I have read and people are constantly recommending to me, uh, and the more recent Visual Delight in Architecture. She currently resides in Santa Cruz, California, where she calls us today. Lisa Heshong, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you very much for having me today. Appreciate it. Thinking back to your time, the bachelor's at Berkeley, and then studying architecture at MIT, I'm wondering if you could talk about who your primary influences were at those places and and how that contributed or didn't, as the case may be, to to where your career led you. Well, I had kind of a wild ride at Berkeley. I got there in 1969 in the middle of the revolution. I originally enrolled in architecture and then found the curriculum much too restrictive. This was before the revolution came to architecture departments. So it was full of concrete statics and it just seemed so dry and restrictive to me that I (laughs) dropped out of that, went over and found a freewheeling 1970s major called Conservation of Natural Resources. It was its first beta year uh, pilot. And I was basically allowed to take classes anywhere in the university that I could put together as a ecology environmental studies class. And it was fabulous. We took field trips all over California. I studied 
biology, physiology, ecology, planning, policy, law, journalism, anthropology, <laughs> everything I could get into. And I came up with this very wide-ranging master's of science, but then decided what I really wanted to do was go back into not so much architecture, but urban planning. Right. And at the end of my year, I started taking, at the end of my undergraduate, I started taking planning classes and learned about Christopher Alexander. My first job out of school was working for Christopher Alexander. Wow. Um, and then we went to Spain and Morocco to work on a new town. So it was a great privilege to rub shoulders with lots of people with some pretty interesting ideas, but I quickly decided I needed to get to graduate school and took off and left for MIT, which was a very, another very yeasty place with yeah. lots of interesting people. Um, and interestingly, I became the ecologist at <laughs> right. MIT. So I started getting jobs where I played that ecological role. Um, we did a project called Housing for the Pequannock Watershed, which was meant to be an Ian McCarg-type ecological planned city, also paying attention to microclimate. Wow. That led me into becoming the TA for the microclimate class that Tim Johnson was pioneering. And we did lots and lots of uh, wind tunnel and water table studies, trying to understand the flow of materials. Um, and it quickly made me an expert on microclimate. Wow. Which then transitioned to being really interested in passive solar design because passive solar design is basically the microclimate indoors. Sure. Um, and I then got pulled into doing internships with a new solar design company up in New Hampshire called Total Environmental Action, not <laughs> a humble name, um, with Bruce Anderson, who had written the Solar Home book, and a number of other of us folks from MIT, including my current husband, migrated up into New Hampshire and created a little Shangri-La of passive solar design, wow. um, which thrived in the Carter era. And we were <laughs> doing some really cutting edge research on how to computerize the analysis of buildings, you know, back in mainframe days when we would ship out data at night and bring it back <laughs> the next morning. We built demonstration houses and then as soon as Reagan got elected, he put the entire Department of Energy contracts on hold. Mm. Our company came close to starving to death. My husband and I decided to move looking for jobs. We came back to California. I imported him with me. <laughs> um, and sort of brought this ethos of how to bring passive solar design to architecture into my new life as a licensed architect wow. in California. You seem to have determined uh, early on that you would consult on projects and jump into academic research rather than 
sort of following the traditional design architect pathway. Um, why do you think you chose that pathway? Actually, I didn't. Um, I very much wanted to be a design architect. Yeah. And at PEA in New Hampshire, I was on the design team. So yeah. we were designing passive solar buildings. Um, when I came to California, I jumped back into being on design projects and tried to make my living that way for yeah. 10 years. But it was quite a brutal time economically. Yeah. And it was a feast and famine cycle in architecture. Um, after a couple of those cycles, my husband, who had stayed in consulting and research, uh, working with Sim Vanderen in California mm. and Peter Kelthorpe at yep. that time, sort of convinced me that we should have a plan to start a firm together. And I bought into that and said, that's a good idea. Let's collaborate. Great. And that was the launch of the Heshon Mahone Group. Um, first, it was just the two of us, Heshon and Mahone. <laughs> <laughs> and then we gradually grew to 45 people by the time we sold the company. A group. So, Great. You know, from my perspective, the research you've done that's probably had the most impact, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, is your work around daylighting, and particularly in schools, but also in retail settings. And I sort of wonder if you agree and if you could talk your audience through kind of what our audience through what you found uh, in that research. Well, first, let me start. At the time when I first launched that research, I had been working on what are called um, energy impact evaluation studies, mm -hmm. looking at how well utility energy efficiency programs were performing on aggregate across the state or the utility area, which were large population studies of hundreds or thousands of buildings that we were sampling and measuring their performance. And it dawned on me that I could use the same technique to study the performance of building in terms of other outcomes, such as sales and retail or education in schools. And I had been working as a school architect. I knew the territory really well. Yeah. Um, and I made a proposal to PG&E to do this kind of a study and the planets aligned and the right people were in place to fund it. And I got funding to see if I could apply those techniques. Um, originally, I didn't know how to be successful at this. Um, I thought I might look at an industrial building. Um, retail, I knew had lots of cookie cutter buildings that were nearly identical that would be applicable right um and because of the school districts and i knew how difficult it was to do this field work i recruited three different school districts for the study seattle fort collins and capistrano mm. they all agreed to give me their student performance data and let us go on site to evaluate the buildings same thing with a retailer who at the time requested to be anonymous but i'm finally revealing who that was in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and 
what we found across the board consistently in every case was that more daylighting was correlated with better performance. Um, and these were large statistical studies where we were using advanced statistical analysis and the consistency was striking. Wow. It seems like one of the challenges, and you've largely surmounted this, I think, in your work, but one of the challenges you see in folks researching the built environment uh, is the difficulty of establishing control groups and, and having enough subjects for the work to have real statistical heft. And I'm just sort of curious, like if there was a, enough money available, like for instance, if you had a chunk of the CDC budget to play with, what sort of research would you like to see done um, right now? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> and, you know, when I, I, our studies first came out in the early 2000s, around 1999, 2000, um, Dick Jackson was head of the environmental unit at the Center for Disease Control. Hmm. Um, he's public health. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he realized that there was a relationship between the environment and public health. Yeah. Urban he sprawl and public health. He's, he wrote he was the book specifically on it. Yeah. focusing on obesity and the relationship yep. between urban sprawl and obesity. He had a number of very good statisticians working for him and he asked them to look at my work and see if it was reputable. That put us in conversation. And he has since been one of my greatest heroes because he has worked tirelessly to connect pub the public health realm with architecture and urban planning. And he yeah. spawned a whole generation or two of people in public health that are interested in this issue and who understand that the physical environment is extremely important to public health. Um, the focus has generally been on indoor air quality, sick building syndrome. Yeah. Certainly after COVID, all the ventilation yeah. issues have come up and there's been a great deal of attention to this. But I think that with my book, I've tried to pull together the many, many different aspects of health and well-being that are affected by daylighting and view. Yeah. And they deserve a similar level of attention. So if I had a magic wand, queen for a day, no, queen for a couple of years. <laughs> you would, you would, you would uh, be Dick Jackson or clone him for your purposes? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I would recruit some of his, at the CDC. I would recruit yeah. some of his students and yeah. look to study in-field studies with large epidemiological methods, looking at the outcome of exposure to daylight in buildings, exposure yeah. to view. We have a similar problem with dark skies at night and light pollution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that also deserves a similar level of epidemiological work, although there's been some very, very compelling studies in that yeah. arena. That would be amazing. You know, the other challenge with research, of course, is sort of getting people to read it and um, and apply the lessons. And I've always thought that your books, both Thermal Delight in Architecture and the more recent Visual Delight in Architecture, were in a way attempts to deliver some of that research knowledge in a more approachable format than a white paper. And uh, is the relationship between your research and the books that simple, or do the books have much larger, more profound purposes for you? The answer is yes and yes. Yeah. Um, they were both written to be very accessible. 
And thermal delight has been come a classic in undergraduate education for architects around the world, yeah. which is very flattering. Um, I tried to re- write visual delight in the same voice and at the same level of understanding so that it's very accessible to anyone with a college education, whether they be a building owner or a building occupant or an aspiring architect. Um, so the, the language is non-technical. However, I spent my life in a very technical op- yeah. occupation and worked with lots and lots and lots of numbers um, and delved into both the simulation methodologies and the metrics that are used to evaluate these things. Yeah. So buried within both books, there are challenges to the status quo in terms of how we look at buildings. Yeah, very much so. For example, in Visual Delight, um, I basically challenge our concept of what glare is. Mm. And there are many, many ways of evaluating daylighting glare in the current world. Um, None of them are very good at predicting actual discomfort in buildings. And I think that view is the elephant in the room that we're not talking about. Right. Um, we've left that out of the equation. And if we are going to be so data-based, we need to bring it back yeah. in. Well, they're very beautifully written. Um, and as you say, also don't shy away from delivering technical content. You just do it in a really approachable way, which I, I'm sure is one of the primary reasons that Thermal Delight has been so powerful. And I'm, I imagine Visual Delight will have a similar uh, role in undergraduate education um, moving forward. I mean, Thermal Delight was a really important book for me personally because it's sort of connected to something that I've always had sort of trouble articulating. But at some basic level, architects don't know very much about comfort in buildings, which is sort of astonishing. Mm-hmm. Most are not taught about radiant temperature and cold surfaces. We're not the inadequacy of just blowing warm air against cold glass, um, you know, in the sort of off, the perimeter office, the classic perimeter office situation during during winter months. Um, we learn almost nothing about the role of acoustics, humidity, and smell even in our full kind of experience of, of places. Um, and, and you speak to all of that. Um, uh, in the book, it, it, does, it sounds like you were taught some of these things in school, but it also seems like you educated yourself a lot across your career and not just through your direct research. Uh, again, I would say yes and yes. Yeah. Um, my education very much focused on occupant experience. Um, Ed Allen was my thesis advisor, and he is absolutely poetic about how humans experience space and volume. But then moving on, what I've always urged people I've worked with and students is that if you have a chance to go on a field trip, if you have a chance to go on site, never turn it down. Always go. Always seek out that direct experience and try to calibrate your feelings when you're in a space with all you understand in terms of the analytics and the the drawings and how it's presented yeah. um, in order to construct That's it. That's great advice. Um, and without that 
correlation between your own direct experience and how we understand space, you just lose a lot of wisdom. Um, I have had vastly more success convincing people of the importance of daylight by taking them physically to a space yeah. and saying, ta-da, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see what it feels yeah. like. How does it feel? And then they get it when I only talk about it in terms of numbers um, the arguments go on and on and on. There's always another question, but the understanding never really sinks yeah. in until they put their body in the space. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, the classic, um, you know, in generations past, architects, right? They, if you were of means, you made the the classic European tour. Um, that wasn't because we didn't have drawings of those buildings, right? We knew that there was uh, a tangible, uh, unassailable benefit to experiencing those places in person. And um, I do fear we've lost a little bit of that in the kind of, um, in our kind of worshiping of the kind of image culture um, that happens now, but it's, it's not just architects that... Um, well, speaking of, of an image culture, that's frankly one of the reasons why both thermal delight and visual delight are essentially not illustrated. Mm. Um, Interesting. They're meant as a reaction away from the pretty picture, which is trying to convey everything about a building and instead trying to take the reader mentally deeper into the experience and yeah. draw on their own experience and bring in both poetics and stories that, others have tried to describe to to get it a different way of experiencing buildings yeah i mean architects are often sort of tasked with synthesizing the work of multiple actors on a project and your latest this latest book visual delight does seem very much to be an example of this i mean your own research is of course foundational in this area, but you also bring in knowledge from a huge variety of perspectives, cultural as well as scientific, which I think is really important. Um, what do you feel like is the most important thing for not just architects, but also engineers and all the other building industry types out there to kind of understand about daylight? Well, I, I think maybe it's that daylighting affects us in so many different ways hmm. and that there's not a singular relationship between this much daylight and that much outcome. Um, right. It's sort of the ultimate holistic approach to design that understands site and climate and human experience and technology and tectonics, but that it's, it's also the perfect example of two plus two equals seven <laughs> or nine i don't know but it um in science and ecology there's often talk about um emergent properties of complex systems such that you can't study complex systems by its individual parts there's yeah. more that happens um and I have tried to make the case that that's very much what's going on with our bodies and well-being and daylighting in view. Um, it's happening at, at so many levels that there's not a simple answer one-to-one -one relationship between this and that. Yeah. Um, 
and engineers are very good at singular factors and putting together equations and adding just one number that will approximate good enough. Um, whereas I would urge even the scientists exploring this to take more of a, of a, a three-level approach, which is looking at case studies or, or real buildings, the post-occupancy evaluations we we're talking about, looking at the kind of epidemiological big population studies that are necessary to understand subtle long-term effects. You know, humans aren't real good at understanding long-term effects, climate change. Right. <laughs> um, and so we need those, those big population studies to put numbers on these more subtle effects. And then the lab studies that are more the purview of graduate students, something that you can get done within a year, um, they can help tease out causal relationships, but they can't show you the big picture yeah. and they can't show you how the system works. Yeah. So we need all three. You know, because some of our best daylighting designs uh, or the ones that are the highest profile, the ones that we all see examples of are, you know, schools or offices, or as you pointed out, museums um, that have spent a huge amount of money on projects. It's sort of, it sometimes can get lost that the people with the least access to daylight in their workspaces, in their daily lives uh, are often the most disadvantaged among us. And I feel like you've done a fair amount of work to both dispel that myth. And I wonder if you could talk about how you kind of connect daylighting access to equity issues in your work. Well, I've always studied humble buildings as opposed to the, the flagship headquarters or the fancy museums. Yeah. Um, I'm much more interested in wide-scale population effects. Um, I once tried to recruit a consultant to work with me on a project, and the response was, I don't want to work on big box buildings. You know, that's boring. Um, but, you know, that's where most people are spending their lives. And over the years, I've come across lots of examples of workers who are relegated to basements. Um, and that's their existence at least five days a week. Um, one particularly comes to mind in a class I was teaching on lighting and health, and the fellow had been sitting in the back of the room for three days, not saying much, he's kind of heavy set and looked very healthy, not sure what was going on with him. And after I explained how exposure to daylight and darkness at night sinks our circadian rhythm and drives metabolic health, I sort of said, oh, now, now I get it, you know. After I've been working all day, I, I go home and I tell my wife, look, I, I can't come inside. I just have to sit outside on the front stoop. I look at the sky for half an hour before I can come inside. I, I just can't come in yet. And that was his one moment with the sky sitting on his stoop in Brooklyn. Um, because his day job was sitting in a basement. Because his day job was sitting wow. in a basement. Um, 
the the boredom of being locked in a space, not locked per se, but you know, confined to a space sure. um, all day. It it's it's a grind. It's very hard to go to work every day in that situation. It's hard to keep up the motivation. Yeah. Um, I noticed that call center workers um, have very high quit rates. Yeah. Um, back when my children were just coming out of high school, a bunch of their friends got jobs in call centers and they lasted a week or two. They couldn't take it because it was just too confining. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about the book about visual delight, the most recent book, you really uh, are at pains to kind of disaggregate daylight from views, um, which are both really important, but in, I would say different ways. Um, I think our understanding of how daylight impacts people is fairly substantial at this point, still growing, still need more, um, but it's fairly well established. Um, and it, it, you, and I, but I think we know less uh, about how views impact us. And I, I wonder, um, you know, what you would like to us to better understand about how, you know, views and how they impact us. Well, that's a very good question. And I, I kind of think that's the question of the day. Um, as you said, not as much work has been done on daylighting. In the last 20 years, we've learned an enormous amount about circadian stimulus and how daylight illumination impacts our eyes and, and therefore translates into cognitive performance and, and health. Um, so that's fairly well established. But in this new book, Visual Delight, what I really wanted to explore was the many other ways that view may be interacting with our minds and our bodies. Um, and some of this is frankly speculative. Um, there hasn't been a lot of work. A lot of the scientists working in the fields aren't talking to each other, don't know each other's work. So part of the effort of the book was to connect some of those dots and maybe inspire conversations. Um, I think we, we do know both intuitively and from some evidence that a lot of things are better or worse than others. So it's pretty simple to say a bigger view is better than a smaller view. Lots of sky is better than no sky. Mm. A view of vegetation is better than no vegetation. Um, whenever possible, people always prefer to see water bodies, landmarks. Yeah. Um, they want to see the horizon. They want to see pathways where they are invited to move. Um, they want to see motion and seasonal change. All of those things make a view inherently more interesting. Um, and there may be biological reasons for some of those things. Yeah. We're still trying to sort that out. Um, in general, it's another case of more is better. Um, it, it's not that hard to imagine the difference between a very boring view and a very interesting view. Um, but most important about a view is it's something that people are interested to look at. Yeah. That's, that's fundamentally, um, we, we've tried to disaggregate this in some of our surveys and try to pull apart different qualities. So again, we know what is better or worse, but we don't know exact amounts. You know, if you don't have X amount of such and such, um, you won't get these positive effects. Um, it's always it's always 
a, a scale. Yeah. Um, interestingly, some researchers are just starting to use eye tracking studies to get more precision on what people are looking at. <clears throat> and generally, this is unconscious. It's not something that you can get from self-reports. Right. Um, so we're getting some really interesting information back in terms of what is attracting attention, uh, what's holding attention and why. It's the same way that babies like to look at faces. So we can understand a lot about how their minds are working from watching how they are processing visual information. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's uh, challenging. You know, this is all so deeply connected to biophilia and um, our sort of natural connection to natural systems, but it's all quite embedded right in our DNA. It's all mostly subconscious. And so it's a challenge to, to, um, to pull that out. Um, are there, uh, are there simple ways in which our building and energy codes, um, might make daylighting accessible spaces, daylight accessible spaces, the norm, um, and, you know, sort of same question around views. I wonder if you think there still remain um, major sort of barriers embedded in our codes to, to implementing um, or getting everyone access to, um, to, the, to daylight and views. Well, you know, our codes started back in the early 20th century focusing on health and well-being. And there was a reaction to the tenements of the time with people living in very crowded conditions and uh, the progressive movement basically said we need better buildings and mandated that homes needed to have a minimum amount of light and ventilation. So for over 100 years, we have had requirements and codes for minimum window area and operable area for homes. What we don't have that is for workplaces. And there has always been resistance from building owners that they don't want constraints on how they build their buildings. Um, and then more recently, the focus on codes has been primarily on energy performance rather than human health and well-being. Um, and so we get lots and lots of pushback on more glasses, always going to be more energy use, can't have that. Yep. We, we need windows to be smaller, darker, smaller, darker. Um, keep the sun out. Um, I think especially with our recent experience with COVID, people have realized that a healthy workplace is absolutely essential. Yeah. And certainly ventilation is important, but there's a lot more to it than just how much air you're pushing through a building and that we need to design buildings that really support human health. Um, there is a movement saying that window views and a view to the outdoors should be a human right. Yeah. North Americans spend over 90% of their lives inside of buildings. That's where we live. We live inside of buildings. If that's where we live, we need healthy buildings yeah. and everybody needs a healthy building. Yeah. Um, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the time and your, your thoughtfulness on these issues. Um, as we emerge from COVID, I guess we unfortunately face a lot of the same challenges that we, um, when we entered the pandemic, um, uh, I think we're all looking 
uh, for inspiration, for the spark um, that'll make us a little bit more courageous in the coming years. I'm, I'm curious who or what is really inspiring you um, these days? Well, architecturally, I'm hoping that COVID has really taught us a lesson how important the design of our buildings is to the quality of our life. Um, so much of the country lived through the trauma of being sent home from work and trying to figure out how to manage a work life yeah. in their cramped apartments and houses with children running around and desperately afraid about contagion and how to keep this and, and yet so cut off from their, their regular social contact. Uh, we saw people improvising in Europe, they would go out on their balconies and play music or sing songs in the evening to get some sense of social connection. Well, those balconies were really, really important yeah. um, and enabled life to go on with some semblance of normalcy. In the United States, we don't have as many balconies. We don't have as many operable windows. Um, people in buildings often just feel like taking a brick and throwing <laughs> it at the windows and get it open. Um, it shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. And I, I think that we've realized how essential our physical environment is to our functioning. And we need to take that and apply that to buildings going forward. I often notice that people are very passive about their physical environment. They think there's nothing they can do about yeah. it. Uh, they, they take it as a given, but it's not a given. Yeah. Buildings are being designed every day. There's many, many options, and especially codes and standards and mandatory requirements can make the difference going forward in terms of our infrastructure for the future. So we want cities in the future that can support health and well-being, and we need to take action now to make that happen. Yeah. Well, that's a great um, a great and encouraging note uh, to end on. Um, again, I really, really appreciate your time. I, uh, I want to thank you both for the time this morning, but all the work you've done on these issues over the years. Um, you've advanced um, work on so many people's desks um, for so many years. You should be, I hope you're very proud um, of that legacy. And I'm, I'm looking forward to um, hearing what you are doing in the in the coming uh, in the coming few years as well. Well, thank you, Yetzan. I really appreciate hearing that, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. It's been an interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye now. Bye.